and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Antonius Smith, and I'm excited to welcome today Daniel DeVise in this first part of two episodes. Daniel DeVise is a journalist, writer, and a graduate of Wesleyan and Northwestern Universities. He has worked at the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and a multitude of other newspapers in a career spanning 23 years. In 2001, he was the co-recipient of a Team Pulitzer Prize and has acquired over two dozen other national as well as regional awards in journalism. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan, here on Book Talk. And we will be discussing your latest book, a biography, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. And this is by Daniel DeVise, guys. How are you doing today? I'm terrific. And I'm honored to be back on the air in Memphis. Um, I think this is maybe my fourth or fifth time being on some kind of radio or television station in Memphis. The, the first was WDIA, the, oh, nice. the, the station where B.B. himself worked. Um, I, I was on the air briefly with um, Bobby O.J., uh, the great, the great DJ. Amazing. Um, and and yeah, and I, at one point I was on the air for a full hour in the studio in that huge, repurposed old Sears. You know, it's been wonderful to talk to actual, you know, radio talent in Memphis because B.B. is this is part of the story there. He's part of the fabric of radio in Memphis. You know, absolutely. In the earlier part of this book, one of the first things that stood out to me was the section where you mentioned the predecessor of the guitar, the diddly bow. Can you tell us about some of its own influences and why it was so significant to the birth of the blues? Yeah, um, the diddly bow and uh, uh, real historians, and I'm, I'm not really a real historian, have done all this research, but it was this instrument that was uh, fashioned from like you know, like a, a board and a wire and, you know, you'd, you'd create tension on the wire and it would make a note. And then I guess if you pressed it down at certain points on the broomstick or whatever, or on the board that it would, uh, and it, it would be bowed and then it would, you could change the tone of this thing. And I picture, uh, young musicians in, in the Mississippi Delta being of such, such just non-existent means that, you know, what kind of money you had in your family, determined what kind of instrument you might have at your disposal. And the diddly bow is this big step in terms of, I think, a number of young you know, children who would become blues musicians, just a step on that on the way, because I don't think like maybe five-year-old uh, Riley King, B.B. King, might not have had any resources or means to get an, a real guitar. And there's debate over when he actually first was able to have a guitar, but I think it was later. But he was able to make a diddly bow just out of the flotsam around the house where he worked as a, or the farm where he worked as a sharecropper. So that, yeah, the diddly bow and in turn, like that instruments, historians say go, dates back to a simple instrument that was made by people in Africa from an actual, like a gourd and a palm frond. And that's, that just blows your mind to think that that like musical technology crossed over from that continent to this one. And then this, and that's in dispute. I mean, not, not everybody would agree that that's, some people, I think, believe that the diddly bow maybe just took shape organically among people in, in the American South. But it may be related to this ancient African instrument, which is a really cool thought. That is an amazing, amazing thought and amazing information and history about this instrument. It was honestly my first time when I read about it in the book, learning more. So that was pretty awesome. And it makes you realize where where Bo Diddley got his name, right? Yeah, it's so funny. That, yes. I think he just switched around the, the words. Wow, I didn't even think of that. All right. 
One of Riley's biggest influence was the violinist and guitarist Lonnie Johnson. Uh, what was so special about his style that influenced B.B. so much? And I, I, I knew the name Lonnie Johnson when I started on this book, but I, I'm, you know, like most people inhabiting this earth now, I'm young enough that obviously I wasn't really of his era and I didn't really know much about him. But I went and I learned and oh my God, he's a, a massive, massively important guitarist. I would say, um, you know, the former New York Times music writer, Robert Palmer, I think it was he maybe who said that Lonnie Johnson ought to be considered as one of the absolute most important guitarists ever. Lonnie Johnson grew up, I think he was classically trained. And because of his classical training, he was familiar with the violin. And if you played violin, in, even in the 1800s, you were using vibrato, uh, that kind of yes. sort of natural quaver of a human voice. Um, people long ago figured out to do that on the violin. And so that's crucial because Lonnie Johnson took that sound and that style of play and transported it to the guitar. And I'm thinking that maybe nobody, at least no significant well-known musician who played the guitar before him had, had thought to do it. Um, and that's, that, that's just as massive because think about Louis Armstrong and how he kind of introduced this really rich, deep vibrato on the uh, trumpet, that, a, a kind of a, a, a lyrical style of solo. Again, he might not have been the very first horn player to do it, but he was the first prominent one. So Lonnie Johnson deserves that credit with the guitar. And he played in an era when there, was, there weren't amplifiers, so he was doing this on an acoustic guitar, and probably not many people could hear him from any great distance. But he sort of was an innovator in the single string solo, you know, soloing on one string of the guitar, which obviously everybody from Eddie Van Halen to um, <laughs> to B.B. King has done since then. Yes. But in the 20s, that was an innovation. Um, and, and so he's hugely important in just not just B.B. King, but anybody who would who would play a solo on a guitar in the years since they all owe a huge debt to uh, to Lonnie Johnson. Absolutely. Charlie Christian was another huge influence that had a singular style of playing lines similar to those notated for horns, the kind of how, you know, B.B. is infamous for. Yeah, I, I see a direct line from Lonnie Johnson to Charlie Christian. Um, so around about 1935, give or take, um, amplifiers were introduced. And also uh, the sort of pickups, if anybody plays a guitar knows what a pickup is, it kind of is like a microphone you attach you would attach to the strings of the guitar that amplified it. So by the time Charlie Christian came on the scene, a great black jazz musician, there was the ability to amplify those sounds. And so Lonnie Johnson was doing all this without amplification, which is wild. I don't know how he was able to, you know, sort of project the sound of his guitar. But Charlie mm -hmm. Christian had the benefit of an amplifier. And so he becomes the first prominent jazz musician to sort of step forward as a soloist on the guitar. And he, he worked with Ben Goodman, had one of the great integrated jazz ensembles. And so uh, Charlie Christian, you can hear recordings of him playing with Benny Goodman, and it is amazing music. And B.B., in his memoir, thought that he remembered seeing like a, a film footage of Charlie Christian. I'm thinking that it was more likely he just heard it because I, I asked a, a scholar of, of uh, jazz music uh, from, I think, Kansas, who said that uh, there is no film footage of Charlie. He died very, mm. very young and very, very early. There are wonderful recordings of, of him playing, and so B.B. heard those. And and so both of those two, that's a lineage right there. 
Um, I mean, there were many, 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 many musicians, but in terms of like playing solos on the guitar, mm -hmm. those two names are just ginormously important um, and, 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 and enormously important to BB as well in his development. Absolutely. And I also took note that most of BB's actual influences did not come from other Delta Blues musicians. Yeah, that's right. Well, so both of these men, Charlie Christian and Lonnie Johnson, came from outside Mississippi. And the important fact here is that Riley King, who had become BB King, was listening to records, to Victrola records, uh, in his Aunt Mima's cabin. His, aunt, his great Aunt Mima was part of this larger sharecropping uh, family that mm -hmm. lived in the Delta. They, they didn't have a whole lot of resources, but Aunt Mima had a Victrola. And so she had a bunch of records. And BB, uh, you know, rattles off a list of a number of different performers he heard on record in Aunt Mima's cabin. So those would include certainly Lonnie Johnson. He was, he was very popular. Uh, Charlie Christian, probably. Uh, also, like Blind Lemon Jefferson who also was not from the Delta. Blind Lemon Jefferson was from Texas and was the first superstar acoustic blues guitarist. Um, and he was he was active before the, the Depression. And that's an mm -hmm. enormous distinction because once the Depression hit, record sales shrank to almost nothing. So all these people whose recordings B.B. would have heard in his auntie's cabin were people from pretty much outside the Delta who were superstars um, and had recordings. The only Delta influence whose records would have been on that shelf, on Aunt Mima's shelf, would have been the great Charlie Patton, the first, I believe, the first sort of giant of Delta Blues guitar. And the reason why B.B. would have heard his stuff is that Charlie Patton sold a lot of records. And so Aunt Mima would have had some of his records. And and B.B. remembers all this. And this, so this is the distinction. He wasn't, Riley King wasn't generally kind of going out necessarily to clubs and watching blues guitarists play. I'm sure he did some of that, but his biggest influences were influences he heard really on record. Uh, and so they could have been from anywhere and mm -hmm. indeed they were mostly from outside Mississippi. That is amazing information, Dan. Thank you. So speaking of his family, young Riley was very close to his mother, Nora Ella, who unfortunately passed away very young. Um, there was some graphic details surrounding the affliction that she succumbed to. I know there was a mention uh, in your book of tuberculosis, but no specific disease yeah. was named. Uh, what possible illness could it have been at the time? Well, of course, medical care for Delta residents, both black and white, was, was not um, the best back then, and especially for the sharecropping families uh, in, in the Delta. There, there were these kind of country doctors who probably had pretty limited skills. And so uh, people would die very young of things that you'd survive today. B.B. lost everyone. Um, he lost first a younger brother who mm. was born a, a couple years after him. His name was Curse, I think, C-U-R-C-E. And he apparently died after ingesting glass, some horrible story like that. So B.B. lost his baby brother. Uh, then his mother left his father, and so he kind of lost, quote-unquote, his father, although he would resurface later. And then I think Riley was about nine years old when his mother died. I believe his mother actually died of complications from diabetes, and I believe this because of the symptoms. She'd gone blind, and I think there was actually, like, was bleeding from her eyes. Horrible, horrible stuff. And she was very, very young. I don't think she was even 30 when she died. She was in her late 20s, but because it was not treated, maybe I'm not even sure it was treatable in the, in mm -hmm. the, in the 1930s. So he, he was at this wrenching, horrifying death 
deathbed scene of his, his poor mother. And so she passed. And then he went into the care of, of her family and really primarily the care of his grandmother, Elnora. Um, and, then, and then about five years later, she died uh, when Riley was about 14. And she, I, I believe, succumbed to tuberculosis. And the only treatment listed in the records, which my friend Charlie Sawyer unearthed for his book about B.B. King, the arrival of B.B. King, which is the classic early biography from 1980, um, Charlie found evidence that she'd been given some sort of black draft. I don't know. It was, this, it was probably just a tonic that probably didn't do very much. It might have been the equivalent of like, I don't know, a cough syrup or something, but no real treatment. And then she died. So then B.B. was utterly alone and he lived on uh, in in a, in a cabin on on the uh, land of of some farmers for whom he worked, and according to him, according to his recollection, they treated him fairly well, uh, let him dine at the family table, uh, sort of u- used him sort of as a as a a, a sitter uh, and minder for their for their their son who was younger than him, and treated him you know for a sharecropper uh, fairly well. Um, it was. Uh, it, this is all, of course, extremely relative, um, but but Riley had nothing but extremely fond memories of that family, the, the Cartledge family. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a big emphasis on some of his first interactions with the guitar. There was a particular preacher that played with a guitar that was, you know, kind of like a wild thing for that time, right? <laughs> yeah. There are two huge father figures who come into Riley King's life. Um, around the time that his mother died and mm-hmm. he was in his grandmother's care and then and then uh, as she was falling ill. Uh, the first is Luther Henson, the schoolmaster, who ran a one-room schoolhouse and taught all of the black sharecroppers in that vicinity. This would be around Kilmichael, which is just about at the southern periphery of the hill country in, in Mississippi. So it's above the delta and a little bit to the east, I believe. But um, Luther Henson was the one who taught B.B., taught Riley and his friends, his classmates, to have to respect themselves, to treat their bodies well, to eat right, to be respectful of women, uh, the boys, I mean, and to seek out the great heroes of, of black America because they were not going to read about them mm-hmm. in the white newspapers. Uh, Luther Henson would, I think, would bring in copies of, of black newspapers that actually had, you know, favorable coverage of some of the great figures in black America. Uh, and 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 they taught he taught these these students to respect themselves and to respect the the the, the heritage of Black America basically. But you're referring to Archie Fair, the Reverend Archie Fair, who was a guitar slinging preacher who supervised and 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 presided over a congregation in Kilmichael, uh, which was Riley's town. And he probably had a battery operated amp, is what I'm thinking, because. That area was not yet wired for electricity, but somehow he was able to play on the guitar. Maybe he just banged on it and played it as loud as he could. And Riley would go to those sermons and just fell in love with the Reverend Fair and his guitar. It was kind of like he was Elvis to him, you know. So it was that by about age 12, age 13, Riley King really, really wanted to play the guitar and wanted to be a preacher and wanted to play gospel songs and sing gospel. And so he winds up starting a gospel combo out of that church and he then he has a actually a succession of two different gospel groups uh, in which he will remain active all the way up until when he goes to memphis uh, and and had things worked out differently he might have wound up being a gospel singer like you know sort of like a sam cook type character 
It is absolutely true. Uh, one of the gospel groups was the St. John's Gospel Singers, correct? Yeah. That's the second one, and, okay. and probably the one that got farther. That group, I believe, if I remember correctly, Riley and his and a cousin named Burkett Davis mm. and a few other uh, young men formed that group. This is after B.B. Riley moved from Kilmichael and sort of Hill Country to the Delta, to mm. Indianola, which is the place that is now sort of identified as his hometown. B.B. arrived in Indianola, I believe, in 43, which would have been when he was around 18. And I believe that's when that group became active. And they actually got so good playing at local churches and at community centers and such, um, probably I'm imagining mostly segregated all-black performances. Mm. They got to be so good that they went on the radio on the station WGRM in Greenwood. Uh, and, and so if you'd been in the vicinity of Greenwood, Mississippi in the early 1940s uh, or mid-1940s after B.B. got out of the service, you might have heard B.B. Uh, singing on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been an amazing experience for sure. And I also remember reading that they were inspired by the Golden Gate Quartet. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to, you know, this was another area where I had to educate myself about these groups because I'm not of that era. Mm -hmm. But there were a whole whole bunch of, of, of vocal combos that inspired Riley and his cousin Burkett and the rest of the group. Going all the way back to the Fisk Jubilee Singers, and I think they dated to uh, Reconstruction years, mm. you know, the 1860s or 70s. This would have been, I believe, an a cappella uh, vocal gospel group. Um, that that uh, was extremely important in, in just the evolution of gospel music. And then, yes, the, the Golden Gate Singers, if I remember correctly, I think they were from Virginia, and I think they formed maybe in the 30s. And, gosh, there's this whole succession of gospel groups, one after the, uh, the others, and the Soul Stirrers are probably the best known now because, mm. you know, that's where Sam Cooke came from. But one by one, they introduced innovations like, you know, trading vocals between like a high voice and a low one or uh, sort of overlapping harmonies, three-part harmonies, four-part harmonies. I, one of the groups, and I'm not going to remember which one, had one person who sang with this sort of this sort of clipped sort of style that sounded like more like sort of white pop music. And then the other singer sang in more of a classic black southern accent and so they would throw back and forth between these two different really very different styles of singing it's beautiful stuff and all of that influenced uh influenced riley and and the band he was in and then the other distinction to note is that uh, riley king was playing the guitar with his gospel group and that was not usual i think most of these gospel combos were purely vocal groups and to have a guitar was a little bit of a contentious thing uh, a lot of the well, his own Riley's own family <laughs> didn't like the guitar and didn't like the blues, and the blues was the devil's music. And some of the churches wouldn't let them play uh, if BB was if Riley was going to play his guitar because it was identified with the blues and with bad things. Yes, 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 yes. And Aaron the Bow T Bone Walker, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, was yeah. also one of his biggest influences mentioned as a musician, and he was quite possibly the first to use electric guitar. Is that true? Well, and this is, this is, you have to really suspend what you and I know about pop music uh, because we've been with guitars in our midst for so many years now. But if you go back to the post-war years, the guitar was not a prominent instrument. Now, we've been talking about 
all these guitarists. But the truth is, the guitarists were <laughs> few and far between, and the guitar itself mm -hmm. was kind of a, a backbench instrument. You didn't hear or see much of it in the 30s and into the 40s. If you think of stuff you know, that your grandparents listened to in the war years, <laughs> it was like a lot of horns and a lot of vocals and a lot of piano and you know, Nat Cole, beautiful voices, beautiful piano, but not much guitar. And so T-Bone Walker rose up at a time when the rhythm and blues charts were dominated by horns and singers mm -hmm. and bands that wore suits and played charts and read music and had big, big, you know, big sounds. So T-Bone Walker uh, was a, an unusual, an oddity in that he was a, a front man who played the guitar. There just weren't very many of those, very, very few. In fact, I can't name another, I can't think of another. One. Django kind of Reinhardt, possibly? Yes, you're right, but he was a blues guy. I'm talking, to, I'm sorry, he was a jazz guy in okay. Europe. I'm talking more about like people who would have been on the rhythm and blues charts like mm -hmm. in the 40s. No, you're exactly right. Django Reinhardt was another big influence on B.B. I always talk instead about Charlie Christian. I suspect he had more of an impact on B.B., but they both mm -hmm. had an impact. But yeah, so in the late 40s, there were just very few, you know, combos who were making recordings for rhythm and blues radio that were going on the charts who played guitar and t-bone walker was like the only one and his big song which i think was in 47 was stormy monday and that just had a massive impact on bb because suddenly he realized that there i mean I, I can imagine him thinking okay this is a way that i could play the guitar and be on the radio and sell records if i could be like this guy uh and 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 you know t-bone's innovation was simply to front a rhythm and blues combo with a guitar, and he had these amazing moves of, of, the, of the sort that you would later identify with Little Richard, and after that with Jimi Hendrix, and after that with Prince. He was a magnet, you know, to screaming female fans. He would do the splits, he would play the guitar <laughs> behind his back and with his teeth, and just was an amazing showman. And that passed, that tradition passed down. Uh, when I said Little Richard, I mean, yes, but and also Chuck Berry. And then it passes down to Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. who played with some of those guys, you know, and then it passed from Jimi Hendrix to, 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 to Rick James. Let's give credit where due. Mm -hmm. Rick James and then and then to Prince. And, and, you know, Rick James always thought the Prince kind of stole it from him. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. He also uh, and when I say he, Riley, B.B. King, he also had some famous family members that played a part in his musical journey. eh? Well, there's one huge, huge name, and that's. You wonder where B.B. King got his, you know, his genetics to be this genius, a towering giant of music. Well, he had a, a cousin, and I think he was actually, the cousin was actually like once removed, whatever it's called, where he was actually, I think, a first cousin to B.B.'s mother. His name was Booker T. Washington White, you know, named after Booker T. Washington. And Booker White was an extremely accomplished uh, blues guitarist. He was an actual, real-life Mississippi blues guitarist who played with a slide and had an amazing attack and a, and a, and a, a repertoire of beautiful songs. Um, a lot of them are kind of like railroad songs, traveling songs. They have the cadence of the, of the train, you know, um, songs about being on the road because he'd been on the road. And he was older and he first met Riley when Riley was about five or six. And by the time Riley finally made his pilgrimage to Memphis, and I believe that that was in 1946, and I may be wrong with that year, it might have been 47. Riley went and found his cousin, Booker, and stayed with him and kind of apprenticed with him, 
kind of followed Booker White around Memphis, watching him play house parties. Didn't they sometimes call them rent parties? I can't remember what what the derivation is of the rent party, but um, Robert Gordon, I think, has a book called Memphis Rent Party. Um, and Booker would, would perform, and B.B. would watch, and he learned and learned and learned about showmanship and professionalism and getting to your gig on time and all of that. All the while, B.B. Riley was learning his own guitar chops. Not on the slide. He was never really a slide guy, but B.B. was learning to play the electric guitar. And I think he was learning to play it like T-Bone Walker. That was what B.B. wanted to do. Yes. Also, there was a mention of him doing some apprentice-style work or had an interaction where he learned from Robert Johnson at some point. I don't know if it was before he came to Memphis or after he came to Memphis, but I found that really interesting. So, yeah, so as far as I know, B.B. King uh, never met uh, Robert Johnson. However, having said that, Robert Johnson was a huge influence on a man who B.B. would meet when he returned to Memphis. Um, B.B. King first came to Memphis, as I said, I think around 46, 47, and stayed for a number of weeks, maybe a few months, didn't really get anywhere, and returned to Indianola and stayed there for a couple of years. Triangulating through records, I believe B.B. King returned to Memphis around March of 1949, and this time he was there to stay. And he talked his way onto the radio show of Sonny Boy Williamson in West Memphis. Yes. Uh, Sonny Boy was, was a star DJ there, and the other star DJ was Howlin' Wolf, but that's just a piece of trivia. B.B. Uh, talked his way on the Sonny Boy's show and played a, a, couple, a blues song on his guitar. And then the very next day, or so Riley King recalled, he walked into the studios of WDIA, which was the historic sort of first black, all-black radio station where all the talent was African-American, and basically talked his way on the air there. And this was this was Nat Williams' station. Nat Williams was the best-known DJ, and I think he's a Memphis legend. Uh, and B.B. King became the maybe the third or fourth uh, black talent uh, hired there. And so I'm getting to the Robert Johnson connection, which is that once B.B. had his own time on the radio to perform, he needed a band. And he formed his first combo uh and very soon after his arrival in memphis in 49 he hooked up with um robert lockwood robert lockwood jr who was an extraordinarily talented and versatile guitarist who could play all different styles he could play slide he could play you know the single string solo style he could do everything he could do jazz chords what have you and robert lockwood uh, who was basically bb's backup guitarist uh uh, he was, I'm sure, was ex probably more experienced, maybe more talented than B.B. at that point, but he was kind of the number two guitarist mm -hmm. in the band, had played with Robert Johnson and could do such a good imp impression of Robert Johnson's style that supposedly when, when Robert Johnson was alive, if you'd sat him down next to Robert Lockwood, the, the sort of uh, mentee, that they could have played, and if you had your eyes closed, you wouldn't know the difference. And, and so B.B. King had uh, the great Robert Lockwood as kind of his sort of rhythm guitarist uh, in the first year or two that he was performing in Memphis. And that's a big deal because you end up having this band with a two-guitar attack. B.B. King was the sort of flowering solo guitarist, and Robert Lockwood was this incredibly versatile backup guy who could do everything. And 
as I just said, even even one guitarist in a band was was kind of unusual, I think, uh, in rhythm and blues music at that time. So to have mm -hmm. a two guitar attack, we're talking like the equivalent of, you know, like the Rolling Stones later on mm -hmm. or name, name any 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 blues band modern blues guitar band like Robert Cray, I'm sure must have like a second guitarist in the wings. You know, maybe yep. was doing that at the end of the 1940s, which is a big deal. Daniel DeVise is the author of The King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, which is published by Grove Press. I'm Antonius Smith, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.